You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello, and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 91 for Monday, the 27th of November, 2017. My guest today is Dana Reidenauer, a retired FBI agent and the author of two FBI undercover novels with the third in the pipeline. She spent most of her career as an FBI undercover operative infiltrating criminal organisations. Dana's debut novel, Behind the Mask, was released in April 2016 and was named one of the best indie books of 2016 by Kirkus Reviews. Her second novel, Beyond the Cabin, was released in August 2017. Things have recently got very exciting for Dana because she's currently developing some scripts with a view, hopefully, to getting them on TV. When we spoke for the podcast, I began by asking Dana what her work with the FBI involved. Well, I spent 20 years in the FBI and I was in four different field divisions. During that time, I worked a a variety of cases uh, uh, from multifaceted narcotics investigation to domestic sex trafficking of minors to violent crime. And I also spent a large number of years, well, about almost half my career undercover, um, assigned as an undercover agent. So um, during that time, I, in addition to being an investigator, I was always also on our evidence response team. So I learned a lot about evidence and packaging evidence, collecting evidence. And in fact, I went to um, New York City in response to the 9-11 World, Traffic, uh, World Trade Center attack. Um, so our team was there. But probably the highlight of my career was getting into the undercover school. Um, Our undercover school is kind of a, it's a rough school. It's a two week school. It's talk about a harrowing experience, (laughs) but it's, it's not an easy school to get through and pass. And I did. And once I did that, it opened the door for me to be able to work all kinds of undercover cases with the FBI. Now, for me, sitting in my little study in the UK, Dana, this is so amazingly exciting because it's just the sort of thing that we watch in the UK um, on the TV channels from the States. Um, and the FBI, I don't know what it is about, the FBI looks so much more exciting than anything we do in, in the United Kingdom. So, I mean, I take it, though, for you, did it become a day job or was it? did, did, you, did you feel that sense of excitement when you did it? I was lucky enough to always work on the criminal side of the house. So most, most of my career was pretty exciting. When I was working the narcotics cases, we did a lot of search warrants where we were kicking in the doors and going in guns drawn, things like that. There are FBI agents that will go their whole career and never pull their gun out of their holster other than to uh, go to firearms. Um, I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> I was always on the reactive squads, So I was always uh, running out on things and so I guess, yeah, I get, did have a pretty exciting career. It was a lot of fun. Now, now again, in the UK, um, our armed police are very few and far between in the UK. And just even you mentioning firearms there, uh, I mean, that involves training. I mean, you will have knowledge of firearms, which I, I just barely ever seen a firearm in, in my life in the UK. So uh, presumably this is this is quite a technical subject uh, when it comes to uh, to writing. You kind of need to know your firearms, I guess. Right. Exactly. Well, when you spend 20 years 
in an occupation where you carry a gun every single day of your life, it becomes a part of you. It's, your sidearm just becomes an appendage for the most part. You get up in the morning, you get dressed, shower, and you walk out the door, you have your gun, your car keys, and you know whatever else you take, but it just it becomes a part of you. So uh, I don't know. You know, to me, it was it's just something I've done for a long time. So writing about it was was pretty easy for me. And um, just for people who, who write American cr- uh, crime and, and and to just get the facts right, when you when you join the FBI, is there is there some element of you having to to work through the lower ranks first? Is it is it something you progress to, or can you go straight to the FBI? Well, there's a couple of different ways to get in. A lot of people will come straight through as an agent, uh, and they will go to the academy. They'll apply as an agent, want to be an agent, and they'll go to the academy. They'll get through the academy. The cap- Academy is about a 20 to 21 week program. So the people who re- who get through the academy, then they're sent out to field divisions and they're considered the, what, what we call brick agents. Those are the people who are on the street, working the cases every single day. Uh, and you would work as a case agent for a number of years before you would start to think about management and apply for management positions to kind of move up the chain. Now, there's also another way a lot of people do get into the FBI now is become is to become an analyst first. Uh, that's the analyst. They don't carry guns. Um, they still have to be college educated, but it's kind of a stepping stone for a lot of people to become an agent. So they'll go through the academy. Their, their course isn't quite as long. They don't have firearms and they don't have hand-to-hand combat, physical training like that. They'll just have the the school side of everything, the learning, the research, everything like that, the databases. But when they get out, then they're an analyst and they work and they can either remain an analyst or a few do decide to go on and become agents. And then they'll have to go back through the academy as an agent. So they'll have to do it all over again. And what sort of training is required before you get to carry a firearm? The FBI, I think, does it right. Uh, they have an amazing group of firearms instructors at Quantico, Virginia. They take people who have never touched a weapon in their life, and in 20 weeks, they turn them into excellent shooters. And a lot of people come in, and they're a little scared of it. They've never shot a gun. It's it's a whole different experience. It makes a lot of noise, uh, and you have to get over that fear. But the FBI Academy instructors are they're they're amazing. They're excellent. And they have to deal with people. They Some of the people coming through are military people, and they may have uh, bad habits, or they might be hunters, and they've learned a whole different way. And then some of them are people like me. I'd never touched a gun until I showed up at day one in the academy. And they actually kind of prefer sometimes, uh, a lot of times when the women came in, come in, we don't have any bad habits because we have never shot guns. So we're kind of a clean slate. But you'll go through... 20 weeks of training where you're shooting, firing um, a gun about every other day. And then when you get out, you still have to uh, remain proficient. So every four, you have to qualify with that weapon four times a year. So at least four times a year, you're, um, the office gets together and shoots and you have to have a qualifying score to be able to carry your weapon. And now you're just using hand weapons, right? You're using, um, you know, things like uh, automated machine guns, things like that, heavy, heavier firearms. Well, you learn everything. You have handguns, but you also learn to shoot the submachine guns and the shotgun. And you learn everything in the academy. Now, when you get out in the academy, out in the field, most people 
just usually carry the handgun. SWAT team usually will carry a little bit bigger handgun and they'll carry long weapons too. But since I was working narcotics, I had back then we carried MP5, which is a little uh, submachine gun. I was issued a submachine gun. So I had a hand, I had my pistol and I had a submachine gun as well. And how much danger are you in then when you're working narcotics cases? Again, I, what, I'm, what I'm digging into in this part of the interview really is, I guess, our perception of what the FBI does from the TV and what the reality is, the day-to-day reality. Well, that's part of the reason why I wrote the book, because there's so many bad television shows and bad movies and terrible books uh, where people, they either don't do the research – or they just do the research and decide to ignore the research. I'm not sure. But there are very few television shows and movies that actually get it right. Um, people just want to Hollywood up everything. So <laughs> I, I don't know. But um, at, at, when you're working narcotics and violent crime, you, there is an element of danger about every day. When you're going through, anytime you do a search warrant, if you're going to execute a search warrant, there's always a chance somebody's on the other side of the door. And there's always a chance they're armed. So you have to be ready for that. Now, if you're working, say, intelligence and you're sitting at a desk most of the time and you're looking through databases and you're dealing with other agencies and other uh, police officers, you have a lot lower chance of getting into a violent encounter. Over a career that spanned 20 years then, I'm guessing that you must have been shot at more than once. Well, not really, because what happens is when we when the FBI does go in the door, we usually go in with such a force that it's kind of, I guess it scares the person into submission for the most part. And we also try to do things like hit people's houses early in the morning when people are still in bed to lower the chances of somebody having a weapon, being up, moving around. So a couple of the times when I was working, one of my duty stations was the Virgin Islands, and we did marijuana eradication, and we would be out in the field, and there would be rounds cranked off. You couldn't tell where they were coming from. But that's about the closest I've been to being shot at, I guess. And how does that feel when you know that there's live ammunition being fired? Well, it's it's not a good feeling, that's for sure. <laughs> it's a little bit terrifying when you, especially because noise bounces around and you're trying to figure out where you are and where your partners are and the other squad members. You want to make sure everybody's safe. You're trying to figure out where the shooting's coming from, and it's a it's a bit disorienting. What would you say were the the most difficult things that you had to do in that twenty year career? What what did you struggle most with personally? Probably the undercover work. I enjoyed it the most, but it was also the most um, alienating because when you're working undercover, you're kind of on your own. You don't usually have a lot of, well, you don't have any other agents with you. You're by yourself uh, and and the loneliness factor will get to you. Uh, You can't go into the FBI office because you're working undercover, so you can't let people see that you're coming and going from the FBI office. And when I worked undercover, I did long-term deep cover cases where you didn't come out. You would start working the case, and the case may go on two or three years. So you would be undercover that whole time. You would have a whole set of identifications with your undercover name. Um, you, I didn't carry my weapon. I didn't carry my credentials. I didn't carry anything when I worked undercover. So 
even things as simple as your mother being able to pick up the phone and call you, that that didn't happen because you couldn't give out your undercover telephone number to friends and family. So the only way my family could get in touch with me would be to go through my contact agent. She would, my mom would have to call my contact agent if there was an emergency, and then he would have to track me down in the field. But she didn't have my undercover uh, telephone. In fact, nobody did. So that kind of thing, it was just, it was just lonely. It was, you had to kind of figure out ways to tether yourself to reality so you didn't go off the deep end and just to uh, get past the loneliness. And presumably you had to mix socially with the people that you were, that you were tailing or monitoring. Oh, absolutely. With the undercover, that's all you do. You're 24 seven. You're going to the movies with people that you're targeting. You're going to dinner with the people you're targeting. And unlike the movies, a lot of them are pretty good people. I mean, they, they might go, they break the law basically, but sometimes they do it for what they perceive is the right reason. And they may start out being completely above ground, doing everything the right way. And then they, for whatever reason, they get frustrated and then they start to do illegal acts. So um, a lot of the people that I targeted were very intelligent, uh, motivated people, uh, the kind of people you would normally hang out with. So, that, but that is—that's what criminals are, isn't it? They're people that you would hang out with who just happen to have taken a different path. That—that that must be quite difficult then, when you're actually, um, you know, ch- chasing or after those people or, or gathering evidence from those people, and then you have to take them down. It, it can be. It can be, especially if you, because if you're a good undercover, you're going to build relationships with all these people. And the whole point of undercover work is you build relationships to betray relationships. And it doesn't matter how you cut it, betrayal hurts. Uh, Even if you're doing it for the job, you're doing it for the right reasons. When people end up betrayed, uh, it's it's a heart-wrenching thing. What of your personal safety during that time, Dana? It just just strikes me that you're incredibly exposed. And if you were to uh, come out of cover, if people realized who you were and what you were, you'd be very, very vulnerable. Well, and that's kind of why the FBI doesn't let undercover people work in their backyards, so to speak. So if I was working an undercover case, that wouldn't be anywhere that I was living. I would be brought out there. I would live for either two months, three months, two years, three years, however long the case went on. Then when it was over with, I would be transferred either back to where I came from or someplace else. And that's for safety. It must take a huge toll, though, on your personal life, something like that. It does. In fact, um, when I worked my first undercover, I was alone, so I didn't have any backup, and I just had the one contact agent who I would have to meet about 45 minutes away. So uh, it wasn't somebody that I would meet very often, so I was very much alone in that case. The second time I did a long-term case, I had been dating another agent, and he was also an undercover FBI agent as well. So when they asked if if I would come back and do the second case, they needed two agents. So I said, well, um, could we use my my boyfriend at the time? He is now my husband. (laughs) But we were dating at the time. I said, what do you think about using a couple to play a couple? And, of course, uh, we got a little bit of resistance from 
management because I thought, well, this is going to be bad 24-7 and you guys are going to kill each other. But we ultimately talked them into it, and it was a, an amazing experience. It was probably my favorite experience as an FBI agent because I had my backup then built right in. I had my support built right in. If I needed a sounding board, uh, he was there. If I needed backup, he was there. So we worked together for several years as a couple undercover. And I guess it's there's not too many people that could say that. So it was a, a unique experience, and it was the highlight of my FBI career. <laughs> That's an amazing way to start a relationship uh, undercover. Uh, did you ever uh, get fact and fiction mixed up? When you were in, in that situation? Well, not really that one, but I was doing, at one point, I was bouncing around doing a lot of short-term things for different um, offices, so I was always on a plane. And I remember walking through the airport, and I stopped at one point because I had no idea where I was. I had just been flying and traveling so much, doing so many cases. I had no idea what name I was using and what city I was even in. So it took me a few minutes to kind of figure out where I was in life. So it sounds like an incredible uh, career. Um, what then made you start to think about um, leaving the FBI? Well, I kind of knew that I was probably going to do just a, a little over 20 years and then move on to something else just because it, it takes a toll on you. And, and you, you, you're, I was married to the job for the most part. I was spending a lot of time working. And I, I was ready to have a, another life. I was ready for another experience. And I loved the FBI. I had a great time. I had a great career. But I was, frankly, I was ready to get off the merry-go-round and do something different. And what about your husband then? Because your husband, you met in the FBI and was in the FBI. Did he follow you on that trajectory or is he still in the FBI? He actually retired a year before me. That was the other reason I did elect to go ahead and retire. But um, we had been transferred. Our last office was out of Orlando, Florida. And it, it was just hard, to be honest with you. We had both been undercover for so long then, living that lifestyle and it was very difficult to go back to being an agent again. I was still walking around, to be honest, feeling like a bad guy. You know, I came out of the undercover work, but I hadn't actually come out of the undercover work. So I was having trouble diving back in and um, I was put back onto a uh, gang squad. So I was running with a lot of guys who were quite a bit younger and which there's nothing wrong with that except for um I just I was having trouble readjusting to agent life, so to speak. And I think my husband was too. And he was a he was a little older than me, so he was eligible for retirement and he just decided it was time. Yeah, I think you know. I think you know in your heart when it's time to pull the plug and say I'm done. So where did the writing come from? Were you always uh writing, scribbling when you were in the FBI, or is this something that kind of came or as with actual evolution of the job? I Well, in the FBI, you write so many reports, and those are just boring. Mm -hmm. They have to be <laughs> just the facts. Mm -hmm. So it kind of beats the creativity out of you. You don't have any time to write creatively. But my mother, uh, when I first joined the FBI, had told me to keep a journal, and I didn't listen to her. But when I started working undercover, she said, why don't you keep a journal? And I decided, well, this time I would listen to her. So I did keep some journals and I kept them 
hidden in the ceiling panels in my undercover apartment because you couldn't leave those just laying around. So I would just pull them down and jot feelings, emotions, some of the stuff that I was going through just, you know, every every so often. Well, when we were getting ready to uh, do our last transfer, I found all of my journals. I put the new ones and the old ones and I started flipping through them and I thought, well, my mom's always wanted me to so I thought, well, I'll write a book, and I'll write it mainly for my mom. You know, I didn't have any idea it would ever get published and win awards and do all the stuff that I've done with the book. I was, frankly, just writing it for my mom. And then when I had a couple other people that finally had read it, they said, no, this you've got to get this published. You've got to go forth with this. And And I had so many journals. There were so many stories. It was hard to kind of limit it to one. So I thought, well, if I do go down this road, then I have – you know, numerous novels, and I want to get them all out there. <laughs> <laughs> Had you then left the FBI when you first started to write, or was there any kind of an overlap? There was an overlap. I was actually writing the last couple of years of my career, but I didn't publish. I waited until I retired to publish, and I did that for two reasons. One, um, I knew how hard it was going to be to promote and market a brand new book by a brand new author that nobody's ever heard of. So I wouldn't have had time doing that and also being an FBI agent. And the second one was um, I had to get, of course, permission from the FBI. They had to read the book and approve it before I was allowed to publish. And I always have to do that. But had I stayed an employee, I would have, there was another level I would have had to gone through, which was compliance and integrity. And I would have had to ask for a second income. And it was going to be a lot of headaches and paperwork. So I just elected to hold the book. I was done with it and ready to go, hold the book. And then I retired and launched the book the same day. Wow, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> what a great idea. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so I went from one but, crazy career straight into another. I had no idea that being an author was going to be as much, if not more, work than being an FBI agent. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that's a spectacular way to launch a, a writing career. Well done. That's brilliant. When you wrote that first book, what, what was writing like for you at that time? Were you pen and paper? Were you computer? How were you doing it? I started out... I got some yellow legal pads and I thought I'm going to write old fashioned. Like my favorite author of all time is Pat Conroy. And I remember him always talking about how he just wrote on yellow legal pads. So I thought I'm going to be like Pat Conroy. I'm going to write. And that did not last a week. I started looking through my notes. I couldn't read my own handwriting. It was a mess. And so I thought, no. So I pretty much went to the computer and I've been on the computer ever since. (laughs) And how about planning? Did you did you plan it out? I mean, I guess you were working from your journals, but but was there an overall uh, arc for the story, or did you just launch into it and see where it took you? Well, I'm kind of a pantser. I, I just I don't do a lot of outlining. I outline a very I basically put my three acts kind of down, and it's very very rough. I don't I don't do any in depth outlining. I guess. Um, so I was going by the journals and. I let the characters take me where they took me, and it was fun. I, I think if I would uh, outline too much, it wouldn't be as much fun because, I, frankly, I like to be surprised. And my character surprised me a couple of different times. And then how much is based on fact and how much is fiction? Well, the book is fiction, but it is based on some of the cases that I worked and it's based on some of the experiences I've had and 
but and it and it's based on some of the characters I guess that I've encountered in life. <laughs> but for the most part, the storyline um, is fiction. The FBI character, of course, the female FBI agent, uh, kind of young and naive in the first book. I mean, the emotions and the feelings and the things that she encountered, the closeness to one of the targets, things like that. That's all the stuff that I actually did encounter in my career. So that that came straight from the journals and straight from the heart. That was that stuff did pretty much. How much of your writing then is is you maybe uh, working through experiences that you that you've lived through? Well, it's funny that you should say that because I think the writing probably saved my career. When I ended up in Orlando for my last office, I was coming out of the undercover. I didn't. I was transferred against my will from California. I didn't want to leave California. I didn't want to go to Florida. I was angry. I was on a squad, running crazy, working gang in case. I just, uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't, I hadn't come back to reality, so to speak. So I was having a little bit of trouble adjusting. And I found that through the writing, that kind of helped me actually realize. I, at the time, I had a supervisor, and he and I were at each other's throat. We didn't get along. And I said things to that man that I probably once should have never, ever said to anyone. And two, especially to a supervisor who could have basically got me fired. So I think he understood. I think he saw, because he looked at my background, I looked at my records and saw all the rest I made and saw my career. And I think he put two and two together and said, well, this isn't, this isn't a real personality. She's still having some problems. So writing, I started realizing through my character of Lexi that I was still having some issues. And so then my supervisor asked me, he goes, well, you know, you're, you're realizing this and coming to terms with it. What do you think would help? And at the time, they were looking for volunteers to go back to the FBI Academy to work as a counselor and take um, brand new agents through from day one to graduation day. And so I raised my hand. And I to do this for two reasons. One, I think going back to the place where it all started would be good for me. And two, I think working with young agents about to go out on the street where I'm at the end of my career and they're just starting their career, I think it would be good for, you know, just for my morale and it would make me realize why I had become an FBI agent uh, to begin with. And so my supervisor agreed. He allowed me to do it. I had such a great time that I actually extended and did two different classes. Pretty much ended my career as a counselor at the FBI Academy. And it was great. It was a wonderful experience. Great. So, so you left um, feeling positive rather than negative, which is, which is a great thing after such a long career um, to, to, to be feeling like that. When you were writing the books, um, did you – uh, struggle at all you'd written reports uh, I, I, probably countless reports in your career over 20 years um, which as you said were very factual making that move to to, to fiction to um, to fantasy even though it was based on fact um, did you struggle with that at all did you have any problems with the writing for the most part I didn't it flowed pretty easily the one thing I did have a little trouble with is I would try to be too factual to FBI-ish, so to speak. And that's where, you know, a good editor comes along and says, well, 
you're trying to make this too procedural. People really don't aren't interested in that much detail about the FBI. <laughs> so that was about that was my only problem was every every once in a while. I wouldn't want it to be Hollywood. I would want it more real. And the, I'd have to find a fine line between, you know, I didn't want it to go all the way over to just straight out, you know, something fiction. But I I couldn't be too procedural because basically procedure is boring. So that was a, I had a little bit of trouble with that in the first book. The second book, I didn't have any trouble with that at all. I had already passed that. <laughs> Well, was there a sense, though, with that procedural element of um, of writing it down in the order that it happens to to get it in your own head and then to come back again and take all the extraneous bits out and actually make it interesting for a reader? Yes, that that was that was the the deal, I guess, uh, trying to get it all down. And I would have too much, too many facts, too much detail. Uh, almost it was like this, 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 this right by the numbers and that's where coming back the second time around and taking another go at it it was like well they don't need all this stuff and you know i can lighten it up quite a bit here and and cutting big parts out it made the story move a lot faster so when you completed the manuscript the first manuscript of uh, behind the mask um what kind of shape was it in before it went to an editor were you happy with it I was happy with it. Of course, I was a first-time author, so <laughs> I didn't realize uh, that uh, it did have, well, not a lot of problems, but just uh, a few things. I was actually, uh, when it went to the editor the first time and it came back um, marked up with red, I, I opened it up a little bit and I saw the red and I shut it real fast and went to the refrigerator and got a big, tall glass of wine and came back and said, okay, now I'm ready to look. But it looked worse than what it was. It, that was just mostly a lot of, you know, commas out of place and things like that. It, it turned out I was actually lucky. There was there were no major story changes whatsoever. So that was that saved me a lot of work. So having got that editing process uh, completed, um, what then did publication look like for you? Were you always going trad? Did you want to go indie? What? Where, where were you with that? It's funny. I didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. I went to a writing conference, I guess. I was still writing. I was still an, a- I was an agent, still working, and it was a weekend conference. So I, went, I attended a writing conference, and I remember sitting down listening to the speaker. And I looked around the room, and I thought, I don't have any idea what they're talking about. I didn't know the difference between traditional publishing and indie publishing and hybrid publishing. And they're throwing all these terms around. I thought, oh, my goodness, what have I done? Here, I've got this finished manuscript, but I had no idea. So I started talking to people, started talking to other authors and and asking their experiences. And then, of course, I was getting, uh, oh, you need to go traditional. You have to get an agent, go traditional. That's the way to go. You've got a great career. You should do this. And then the next person you talk to is, oh, don't go traditional. It's horrible. It's a terrible experience. Go indie. Keep control of everything. So I had no idea. I was so lost. I just started reading uh, magazines and going to conferences and talking to people. And then I kind of went indie because I thought, I don't want to spend the next two or three years before it ever sees the light of day. It sees the light of day. So that was one of my big uh, decisions to go indie and to keep a little bit more control. But I knew I didn't have the skills to do it myself. 
So that's why I went in search of a publisher, a hybrid publisher, somebody who could take my hand and walk me through the procedure and walk me through the whole process. And um, you know, there's just a lot of ripoffs out there, things like that. So I wanted somebody that I could trust that would take me through the process. And what service did they provide? Were they um, giving it a read, putting a cover on it, all of those sorts of things, and then bringing it to market? What, what did they give you? They did. Uh, my first book was actually published with Wise Inc. Creative Publishing, and they are a hybrid publishing company. They have everything that you possibly need. They have editors. They have book designers, cover designers. They did everything. They would do as much or as little as you needed, and it was great. Um, I was assigned a, an agent to work with, and I would, everything went through her, and we went through some more editing, and, and the cover I thought was fantastic. Guy did the cover right. Um, it, was, it was a good experience, and then they helped me with launching and things. The thing that they didn't have that um, I felt like I needed was a publicist. I still didn't know how to tap into the market. I had this book, I had entered it in all these literary contests, and it won all these literary contests, but I still didn't know how to tap into just the market. How do I get people, how do I get the book in the hands of people? And so what was your answer to that question? Because that, that is, that's the $100 million question, isn't it? Is how do we get our books out there? That's what I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> yeah, you and me both, yeah. I know. And, and so that's actually one of the reasons why I did switch publishers for the second book is because they did have a publicist. Uh, but I think what it comes down to, it's just uh, it's just a lot of hard work. I mean, you just have to be on social media and you have to be, I mean, make appearances and, and teach and speak at conferences and go to book clubs and, and go to book fairs and festivals and get your name out there and shake hands with people and and hope that there's an author that's made it that might take you under their wing and and uh, help you along. Now, let's talk about, you've already alluded to this. You've got a whole long list of awards here, which is, uh, congratulations, by the way. It's amazing. Uh, so I'm not going to read them all because I'll lose breath, I think. I'll, I'll run out of <laughs> breath. But uh, it, it's a really good list and, and, and very impressive. Um, just tell me about... Um, why you enter competitions and what are the sort of highlights of the competitions you've won, the most pleasing um, wins that you've had? Well, I guess I started out entering contests because um, I, honestly, I wanted to know if the book was really any good. You know, everybody tells you, oh, your book's so great. Well, that's your family, your mom, your friends, your cousins. Your, you know, they're not going to say anything bad. <laughs> I hope anyway. So I started entering contests because. I wanted to see if if it really was good. I mean, if people in the literary community could read it and say, yeah, this, this book stands up and it, it's a good read. So that was the number one reason. But I remember the first time I entered it was um, for the Southeastern Writers Association. That was the first time I'd ever let anybody read it, basically. It was unpublished even at that point. So um, I hadn't let anybody read it but the editor. That was it. My husband hadn't even read it at that point. And so I entered that contest and I thought, I can't believe I just did that. And then when I won, I, I was pretty blown away. And that's probably, that's just a memory that I always have is the, that very first win of a, 
a, a manuscript that wasn't even published yet. So I take it after all these wins, you do know now that your writing must be pretty good. Well, I hope so. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm still doing it. The second book's out. I'm working on the third one now. And actually, um, I'm the books are in production for, for television. So I, I'm hoping that one day we'll see it on the small screen. Or in development, I no. guess. It's not in, in, not in production. They're in development. Right, we'll talk about that in a moment or two. I just want to just finish with the competitions because that's very, it's even more excitement. You've got such an exciting life. Um, let me just ask you a little bit more about the competitions. Have you found as an author that, that entering and winning competitions has brought um, a marketing advantage for you? I think it does a little bit just because um, it gives you something to talk about. It gives you something to put out on social media or in your marketing kit to say, it's not just my mom that thinks the book's good. Uh, somebody else thinks the book's good. <laughs> and it, I think it, it, it's helped me with bookstores, the independent bookstores that are sometimes harder to get into. Um, I think if you take them a marketing again, you, you shake hands with the people and say, hey, look, here's my book. It's one blah, 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 blah. Um, I think that kind of can get you in the door to a lot of places that sometimes without it, I wouldn't have gotten in the door. So talk about getting into the door then. You mentioned TV there. We must ask you about that. Television, that's the holy grail as far as authors are concerned, TV and movies. How, how did that come about? Well, I was at a writing conference, actually, Southeastern Writers, uh, one of my favorite little – it's a small, tiny conference that you really have a lot of time to network and talk to people. So a couple of years ago, I met a screenwriter, and he chatted – and we talked about the book. And at that point, I only had one book out. He knew I was writing the second book, but uh, I just had the first book out. And we, we chatted and talked and nothing really that serious. When the second book came out, he contacted me again and said, now we have some material. Let's sit down and talk. And I, I never dreamed about movies or television at all. But I thought, well, you know, let's let's talk about it, see what he says. So we've spent some time and we, we kicked it around and he has a literary agent. He went to his, his agent actually out in California and said, this is our idea. What do you think? And his agent thinks it's a great idea. He says, look, I, I don't think I can sell it for movies right now just because everything is superheroes and things like that. He says, but television's hot and um, with Amazon and Netflix and all these um, channels out there looking for quality programming he said i think you guys are onto something so we started working we just did the one page where they wanted uh kind of the synopsis of what we're working on and then it went from there to well we want the one page we want the first season outlined and then it was well we want the one page the first three seasons outlined so i think we're moving along <laughs> so our next three seasons that's amazing yeah so now we're working on the spec script for them so at that point i guess that's when they'll take it and and run with it and try to actually get uh somebody to put some money down on it and buy it yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So what, at what point do you start to bring some money in on this? Is it that point? It's there, is it, when they, they commit? Yes, it's when they commit. We're, we're not out anything except for all this blood, sweat, and tears of writing the script and putting it all together. And then his agent will sell. Uh, we'll try to sell it. And if it gets picked up at that point in time, that's where uh, the rubber meets the road. 
and they'll put the money up and say, yeah, this is a great idea. We want it. We're going to, and we're hoping if all goes well, we're hoping to come aboard as co-creators and co-writers on the story, which means uh, we'll probably be at least moving temporarily to wherever they're filming. So that's incredibly exciting. So come on then, who have you cast in the lead? <laughs> I I know it's funny. Everybody asked that. And, uh, I have to be young. I actually just saw a movie not too long ago. I guess I think it was wind river. There was a female, it was one of the Olsen girls. Um, I guess Elizabeth Olsen, maybe she was playing a young FBI agent. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, she'd be a perfect Lexi. <laughs> So. <laughs> See, I have cast it. Yeah, it's irresistible, isn't it? Really? I know it is. It is. Well, that, I mean, that's that's a stunning achievement. Good luck with that. I hope that um, works out for you because talk about taking your life in an interesting direction when you've already had an amazing career. It would really be fascinating, wouldn't it, to work through TV? Oh, it would. It'd be it'd be a lot of fun. And at first, I I tried not to get too excited about it, but then as we were writing you know, just, just outlining this, the seasons and where the characters were going and, and all the episodes. It's just, I, I couldn't help but get caught up in the excitement. And I was, wow, this could be really a lot of fun. <laughs> now, in, in terms of the TV then and outlining the, the, the three uh, seasons, you, you've, you're, you've written book two and we're on book three. How much follows the trajectory of your books well the actually we were going to use behind the mask as the first season but we didn't think it was probably gritty enough for what we were looking for so we've taken that the first season that we've outlined is an original it's going to be an original script it's based on the third book that i'm working on but instead my third book is actually set overseas but instead of being set overseas it's set in the united states so uh, I have the idea that I'm working on. I'm kind of working on the third book and the script at the same time. So that's the first season. And if all goes well, the second season is going to be Beyond the Cabin, the new book. And then the third season, um, we're hoping to do like a human trafficking um, undercover during that one. The beauty of having an FBI undercover agent is you can pick her up and move her anywhere you want in the United States. You can go from California to South Carolina to Florida, wherever you need her to be, which I think is kind of cool and fun for television because, you know, you'd have one season. It's going to be kind of like The Wire, I guess. You're going to have one season working on one thing, and then the, the second season you're going to be working on something completely different. And uh, I must say that with, all, with this TV interest and this project going on, presumably you're, you're still um, independently published. Yes. Yes. And has, it, has it generated interest? Well, as far as bigger publishers? Is yes. That, yes. Um, not that I can see so far, but that's, that was some of the advice that I was given by a uh, New York Times bestseller that I had met at a conference too he kind of took me under his wing a little bit and said hey look you need a bigger publisher you need an agent um you know you're not going to get the level of recognition that you need with a staying with this small of a publisher so i I, you know i'm i'm still i'm like everybody else in this business i'm still learning so i'm I don't know what the answer is, to be honest with you. I don't know if that is the answer. Do I go with the bigger publisher? Do I stay with the smaller publisher? Small publishers are nice because you get such an input and you get to you get to talk things through and, and your input counts and you get to tell them what you want on the cover. 
I don't know, you know, it's going to be giving up some control, but I probably would be willing to give up control for a bigger market because I really want people to read the books. The other thing about TVs is TVs become more democratized now. It's become more like indie publishing because if you get your series on Netflix or uh, Amazon, um, it's almost like indie films to a certain extent, or it's certainly more fluid. So is your ambition then to to get this on, on one of the new newer channels or are you going for a regular traditional tv well i would take anything that they're willing to give <laughs> but i do I, I love netflix i think netflix is just great i love amazon too i like being able to sit down and stream uh, a season of something and and watch it in a couple week period versus you know 16 or 17 weeks so my i don't know that we husband and I hardly watch any network TV anymore at all. We're just about all, all Netflix, Amazon, things like that. I would love to see it on Netflix. I think that would be I think it'd be great because I wouldn't have to change any of the profanity and <laughs> I could leave, I could leave it kind of gritty and I think it would fit. I think it'd be a great series for Amazon or uh, Netflix. Fantastic. Well, that, that's very exciting. Good luck um, with all of that. Um, I just want to come back to the books, if I may, because one of the, the things that you've done as well is you've um, you've got audio books of uh, both your published books at the moment. Yes. I just wondered if you would talk me through your experience of that, how you how you cast that and how you went through that process. Uh, that was a great experience. Uh, I went through ACX, which is Amazon, basically, and uh, Amazon has made it so easy to do an audio book. It's, it's so, so easy. I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I just uh, downloaded a couple of the videos and watched and, and it is really just a easy procedure. What you do is you can elect to pay um, an artist, a a producer is what they call them. It's the actor or actress that's going to be reading for you. You can pay them upfront or you can do a split Whereas uh, they would get half of the profits, uh, you would split as the money comes in the door. So it makes it economical for people who might not have the money to outright pay uh, a producer to to read. And somebody had said, well, why don't you read it? And I'm like, oh, that would be just a really bad idea. I'm, <laughs> I'm not good at reading out loud at all. And uh, that's just that's that's not my job. I wanted somebody who is an actor or actress to to read so i went through um what you do is you go through the book and you pick out certain sections and you you make like a little script and what you want the um potential producers to read the people who are trying out for the part and you put it up on amazon and i swear within an hour i think i had 10 in my inbox saying you, you know already um so it got a little overwhelming and I started listening to them, and they were all so good. The hardest part was deciding. I mean, it was it was a very tough decision because I had some amazing actresses reading the parts, and um, it was it was a hard decision. And with the second book, I elected to stay with Kate Marson, who read the first one, because I felt like she did such a great job on Behind the Mask, and she knew the character. Then I felt like she understood Lexi, um, so. I stayed with the same producer for for both books because she did a great job on the first one. I didn't see any. But I did put it out there for audition, and there were some amazing auditions for that one, too. But it's it's easy. They they do all, and then they send it back to you for approval. 
and you listen for uh, you listen to each chapter as it comes through, and you approve it, and then Amazon will take it and give it one final check to make sure engineering wise everything is good, the sounds good, and um, but then they post it and it goes live. What financial model did you go for with your reader? I elected to just uh, pay my um, artist right out, pay them out front because. I, one, I thought it would just be simpler. I just, I'm one of those people that likes to kind of know where everything is, where everything's going. So for me, it was just easier to go ahead and, uh, and pay them up front. And I have also been told that if you do pay them up front, sometimes you'll get people auditioning quicker. And I'm, with Behind the Mask, I really wanted it um, done pretty quick. I, I had waited a while to put the audio book out. So I was kind of a little bit on a time crunch. And did you go for the seven-year commitment, or did you go for the lower uh, royalties uh, so that you keep control of the audience? I went with the seven-year. Uh, you know, most of my sales, when it comes to audio and uh, ebooks, are, I mean, probably ninety-five percent through Amazon. So I just elected to do the seven-year uh, with it with Amazon. What's your um, paperback to ebook uh, ratio? How how do you do on that front? I started out selling a lot more paperbacks than ebooks, but I think it, with the first book anyway, now it's flipped. I'm selling a lot more ebooks than paperbacks. Um, I don't know why. I, 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 the price hasn't really changed, so I don't. I don't really know. There's no rhyme or reason, but that's kind of the situation there. Uh, with the the new book, it's probably about half and half. There's probably about half the same amount as. Um, of trade papers going out as ebooks. Mm, that's good then, because uh, most people would say they sell more uh, ebooks. So that's that's very interesting. If you yeah, and I'm wondering whether uh, to make the change over, like like I said, with uh, behind the mask. Then it it did a flip, and it started just, I mean, mostly um, ebooks. But it's selling quite a few audiobooks too. Both of them are doing really well with the audiobooks. The other thing I must ask is when, when you look at your um, social media channels, I get this real sense of you being out and about. So um, on your page for this podcast, I've got a picture of you at a book festival with your Beyond the Cabin uh, lovely um, decor that you've got on, on your table there. Uh, and you've got the Deeds Publishing um, poster at the back or the, the banner at the back. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I get a sense of you going to festivals. I get a sense of you meeting real people. And I get a sense of you not being afraid to put your books out there. Um, is that true? Is that part of your strategy? Yes. I I think you have to connect to the reader. I mean, uh, people, I, I've heard both versions. People are like, well, you know, go inside the book signings. They don't sell a lot of books and stuff. And, and maybe you're not selling hundreds and hundreds, but all the book signings that I've done have, have done pretty well. I mean, I think I shocked Barnes and Noble at Louisville because they thought, you know, well, you have seven or eight people and, you know, you'd have 50 people rolling in the door. And I've done some local ones where I've had like 100 people, So, and I, which I think is unheard of for, for book signings. But every single person that walks in the door, I want to take the time to shake hands with, look them in the eye, talk to them, and connect with them on some level. And to me, that has been huge, especially regional. Um, because of doing that, I've been invited to speak and do conferences and teach and and that's all word of mouth that's because i took the time to talk to somebody and connect to that reader 
And, you know, everybody laughs at me because I like, I love book clubs. I will go talk to a book club any night of the week because I love readers. And one, they're going to tell you the truth. And two, they're going to, they are real readers. And um, it's just fun. I mean, it's fun to hear what they liked, what they didn't like, uh, you know, and they get so emotional sometimes. It's, it's, it's a, it's a great experience. And Granted, you know, I am retired, so I have the pension, so I'm not relying on my books to pay the bills. Um, maybe if I was relying on my books to pay the bills, I might not be doing as many book clubs and I'd be more doing more podcasts. I don't know. But I I do enjoy connecting with readers. I, I enjoy talking to people and I like doing libraries. And that does it, it, I love it when a library is used to having 10 people and we have a hundred people walking walk in the door. I mean, it just rattles them, and I love that feeling. <laughs> that's that's fantastic. It's really good to hear that you're pulling them in like that. Well done. And um, so you're supposed to be retired in theory, and you sound like you're working harder than you almost ever have done before. Um, we've got so many things happening for you at the moment. How how do you see the next you know year or so? Uh, panning out for you will you will you continue to write or is the tv going to take your time up now? well i'm continuing to write uh if the television does take off if it gets bought uh there will i will that's going to be my priority at that point because uh my partner uh michael and i will have to go to wherever they're filming and i've been told that you're on set and you're working um every day 14 16 hour days so uh that will be pretty much my life if this does if the screenplay gets bought and picked up by television and i'm prepared for that i I think it'd be a fun experience i think it'd be something i hadn't really planned for in life but you know my husband's all for it too so let's just make the best of it and make it into an adventure and and have a good time if it doesn't get picked up well i still have i'm working on the third book and uh, i have some other ideas for book four and i'll just uh, keep writing and, and joy in retirement it's incredibly exciting and um, we've been speaking for an hour now so i must ask you where can people find out more about you um, online well my website is uh net, and that's d-a-n-a-r-i-d-e-n-o-u-r.net i'm actually uh revising the website right now so hopefully the new more kind of flashy website will be up and running here in the next uh uh, next day or so but that's that's my website and both the books are available on amazon and barnes noble um so you can go to uh, uh, either place and get and with amazon you can get the ebook the trade paper or the audiobook donna it's been fabulous speaking to you today thank you very much for your time thank you it was very nice speaking with you too nice to meet you thank you for listening to this week's self-publishing journeys if you enjoyed the show please consider sharing it with your indie author friends Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.